new with us or are unfamiliar with uh, our, our, uh, our church here, my name is Jeff and I'm the lead pastor. And one of the things we care about um, is uh, helping families and marriages. And um, so one of the guys who goes to our church who happens to be a regular guy but is also a, um, like an international celebrity in the world of family. I was going to say international celebrity in the world of, world of porn, but that would not have worked well. I mean, that would have been... I'm glad I didn't say that into the microphone. Um, but Jim Burns is, um, is a super sought-after expert in this field. And it was, I asked him, I said, would you ever want to do a, a little bit of a series for us on some of these things? And Jim said yes. And so we're in the third week. Uh, and there'll be one more after this. But um, today is how do we create a media-safe home for our families, which I'm sure many of you have all the answers to and are here just to supply confirmation uh, because all of us have no idea what we're doing with this sort of stuff. You do, right, Schubert? Yeah, you got it. The Canadians have got this nailed. All right, so Jim Burns is going to talk to us. We're going to get this started, and then uh, we'll have some Q&A afterwards, all right? Okay, thank you, Jeff. Like Jeff said, uh, if you're new to this uh, seminar, I actually go to this church. I always wanted to be the senior pastor, lead pastor, but, you know, they wouldn't have me because I'm too old and bald. Plus, I've always tried to figure out why Jeff married way above himself with his wife, Amanda. I just have no idea how she stooped to, uh, <laughs> to this level. And we have Amanda here today, too, so that's cool. Um, we're going to talk about creating a media-safe home, which is on the title of your little... Uh, does everybody have a sheet? Anybody need a sheet? But we're also going to talk about drug-proof your kids. So you're going to get a, uh, you know, two things of content here pretty quickly. Um, and actually, it's fascinating. There, there's three things that, that you care about as a parent. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about parenting principles and strategies, really important stuff. I'm going to talk about confident parenting and, and how we can you know, try to get our kids to... Uh, to be responsible adults when they, when they grow up. We'll talk about discipline. We'll talk about uh, actually even helping them grow spiritually, a lot of really neat things. But, but there are three things. Basically, it's a mission, a mate, and a master. And what I mean by this is you want your kids when they graduate. Now, some of you have little kids, but you still want to be thinking about this. When they graduate from high school, you want them to know how to have a mission or their purpose. They will probably not know their purpose. Most of you didn't when you were 18. Um, but a mission, a purpose. Secondly is mate. It would be nice to choose their mate, but that's not going to happen. But are you preparing them? And we talked the last two weeks about how to talk to your kids about sex. That's partly about relationships. And so are you, are you treating your kids and teaching your kids and training your kids really how to have a proper relationship? You get a chance at that. Some of your parents didn't do as good a job as, as hopefully you will. And then also is master, your, the relationship with, with the Lord. You know, 85% of all people in America who make a commitment to Jesus Christ make it before age 18 or they never will. So the beauty of being at a place like this that loves kids, Hillary's going to come up and speak in a bit, who's our junior high pastor, our children, Rachel is amazing, high school is amazing. So we're really, you know, this church is focused on this in a really neat way. And the church is here to help us, but really it's still our job. That's why I appreciate you guys coming out on a you know, Tuesday night. You've got plenty of other things to do. So today is creating a media safe home. I want to show a video um, you two have seen it, actually, because you saw it this week. But I want to show you a video um, just to kind of get us started thinking about what people do with their cell phones, okay? Here you go. Really? 
I thought that was a lot funnier than you guys treated that thing. For some reason, when I saw it, actually the picture of the woman who's kind of like dressed like, hey, baby, let's, you know, hubba hubba, and the guy's like, you know, looking on his phone. But anyway, that piece of equipment um, is going to be either a really positive thing in your life or a negative thing in your life. And that piece of equipment basically, um, in 2011, became the greatest distributor of internet pornography for kids, okay? That piece of equipment in 2008 uh, became the the way that kids go online because all of a sudden more kids were online than uh, put more hours online than on television. So it's an interesting thing. Now, I realize your kids are in all different age groups, but I want to make sure that we understand something. Uh, I, was, I was in Richmond, Virginia. I was actually speaking to kids. That's what I used to do. I used to speak to about a quarter million kids a year. And uh, these were high school kids. And I said, how many of you believe it's possible to be addicted to Facebook and texting? Okay, and I, didn't, I could have said Instagram, I could have said all kinds of other things, but I said Facebook and texting, and of the 800 kids, 799 of them raised their hand, okay? Then I said, how many of you are addicted to Facebook and texting? And again, even with Facebook going down among younger people, because you old guys are now using it, so your kids don't want to use it, but as, as, even with it going down, again, about 790 of them raised their hand that they were addicted, so it's very interesting because we're seeing a whole generation of people, this is the way, when, when you guys came in, you were both on your phones, but you weren't the only ones on your phones. I kind of looked in and, and we, that's what we do, okay? We, we, hopefully we don't do some of that kind of weird stuff, like the lady taking the shower while she's, you know, looking there. I, had, I do a radio show and I met a woman in San Francisco who came up to me and one of my friends from Homeward, who I work with, was there and this woman came up to me and she said, Oh, it's so good to meet you. I, I listen to you every day. I actually take a shower with you every day. And I was like, that's really weird, okay? So she had gone and bought um, for her cell phone, you know, a waterproof deal so she wouldn't miss our program that was on in San Francisco at 6.30 in the morning. And, you know, we're ju- it's just an interesting generation today. Let me say a few things just in, in general. Media uh, is not uh, neutral, not all bad. You know, this, today as I was driving here, I was talking to my daughter Christy, she's pregnant, and she had got a, she had an ultrasound today, and it was her second one, and so she had sent it by the cell phone, and sent it in a group text to our whole family, and everybody was making comments and stuff about it, and it was really exciting, and so I was talking to her on the phone, that was neat, so I had a really neat bonding moment with my daughter, and sort of with her husband, because they were on a walk at Dana Point, um, and so, you know, we were kind of talking, and, and so the, the ultrasound was was technology anyway, not necessarily media, but media sent it to me. Um, The conversation was going good. So there's lots of good things about this. What we tend to do when people talk about media is we tend to talk about all the bad stuff. I actually talked about pornography last week, so I don't have to necessarily bring it up. But it is important that we do understand that the world has changed. For example, um, I was this day talking with Neil Clark Warren. He's the founder of of eHarmony.com. I'm doing some things with eHarmony and just think the world of Neil. And um, Neil would say that one out of six people who meet, now meet, or who get married in a year, meet online. So the thing that I'm saying is, is the world's, your kids, that will be lower. So your kids, it will be more natural for them to do that. Now within this room, there would be people who met online, which is great. See, but the world has changed. So technology changes the way we, you know, the way we look at things. Okay, and one of, one of the things I want to say as parents, and, and I'll pound this into you, is that we need to be able to be students of the culture. So for some of you, I can just congratulate you have younger kids because I'm going to talk a little bit culture stuff today, and we've got to be students of the culture. 
Not the culture that your kids are going to be in, but the culture that's here today, okay? And so if you're going to be a student of the culture, it's important that you do, well, I'm going to say four things. Listen to what kids listen to today, okay? And you're going, seriously, I'm already incredibly busy. I'm overcommitted. I'm underconnected. I, you know, I'm just crazy busy. And I'm saying figure out a way to listen to what kids listen to. Uh, read what they read, okay? Watch what they watch and see what they see. Because if you're going to do that, you're going to, it's going to be able to help your kids. In 1974, there was a study done, that, and, and media was number eight in influence of kids. Today, it's number two. Okay? Number two was grandparents. Number two is now, I mean, number, uh, grandparents aren't even on the list of the top ten. I hope that's not the case with your, with your kids. It's kind of the case with my kids. Okay? So the world has changed as we kind of think through this, and so it's important for us to, to, to actually be students of the culture. And so what do you do? And, and you can kind of fill in these blanks if you want, but basically you're going to have to evaluate everything your kids see and hear, okay? So what I'm telling you is this is a big job, and, uh, you know, today it's more complicated because of uh, MP3 and whatnot. You, I'm still saying you listen to their music and what kind of music is in, your, is in the home. Uh, what are they viewing? Especially as younger ones, you're going to have to monitor what goes on with the computer and things like that. Um, so you're going to have to evaluate everything they see and hear. You're going to have to examine your own behavior. Okay? Children see, children do. I'm not saying your behavior has to be the exact same behavior as kids, but again, they're going to, they're going to basically watch you and model you. Uh, thirdly is you've got to enter into dialogue, not monologue. This is actually just good parenting, but your job is to teach them to learn to discern. Your job is to teach them to learn how to use media to a, to a benefit because th they're going to be bombarded by stuff that even you and some of you are pretty young weren't bombarded by like this generation of kids. And so you're going to have to help them you know, kind of learn to discern. You do that by dialogue, not by monologue. And then also you're going to have to develop boundaries and expectations. Okay, it's just that simple. Kids need boundaries and expectations. You're going to have to make decisions at what age... Uh, do they get a cell phone? At what age do they have Wi-Fi unlimited? At what age can they be in their bedroom for hours on Wi-Fi? Um, at what age are you going to allow them to have Snapchat or not have Snapchat? Um, are they going to be on Tinder or not on Tinder? Um, will you have the passwords to their Facebook and to their Instagram account or not have the passwords to their Facebook and Instagram account? Those are all questions you're going have, to have to ask. And the fascinating side is it's getting younger and younger and younger. Okay, I've got a friend who um, is kind of a part of the homeward world, that his six-year-old was really upset because he was watching a movie that he got on his iPad, but on the Netflix account, and he wasn't trying to look at a bad movie, and it wasn't even a horrible movie, but it was not a six-year-old movie, but, it, you know, there was some cussing, and it was a little bit of nudity, and, and the truth was is that this kid was trying to get another one. He just accidentally pushed the wrong button, so he says to his dad, I'm really upset because this is the movie I'm watching. His dad kind of goes, you're six, okay? Well, he wasn't doing that intentionally. He just made a mistake, but today, this kid knows more about handling his Netflix account than quite possibly, you know, some other people, okay? And by the time people get a certain age, I mean, the, the, one of the questions that's going to happen, I was in Columbia, Missouri, not this last weekend, but the weekend before, and they pass out iPad. Every kid in Columbia, Missouri, at fourth grade gets an iPad. And so that iPad doesn't have Wi-Fi. The, the iPad has Wi-Fi. It doesn't have, like, you know, it's not connected to AT&T or whatever. So these fourth graders in Columbia um, were just handed these things, and now they're going to have to decide how do you monitor what these kids watch. So some of the parents were saying, we don't have iPads ourselves, and we're not sure how to navigate this, and yet these kids have it. What do we do? 
Well, you pretty much are going to have to learn how to you know, set some of those boundaries up. Now, I've just laid out for you um, some contract ideas. I'm not going to go through them. I just wanted to show you that what I'm saying to do as parents these days in terms of setting boundaries is, is have a contract. You don't have to have this contract. I'm just putting a contract out in front of you. And if you go to homeward.com, you can pick up these contracts, and then on a Word file, you can, you can make your own personal contracts. But I'm saying today to parents that you know, they need an Internet contract. They actually need a music agreement contract, and actually they need a TV and, and movie contract because those are all a part of it. One of the things that we as parents think about most is we think about computer, and we're afraid we're going to see weird pop-ups and all this kind of stuff, but I just, I'm not going to talk about each of these. I just want you to make sure that you circle where it says making sense of the media. What I did was I made a listing of what involves media, because sometimes we forget that uh, you know, media is, is, you know, is gaming, video gaming. Um, it could be chat room. Media is magazines. What kind of magazines are you going to let your kids read as you get certain ages? Is, you know, those are those kinds of questions. So circle that, and then I think you um, want to have a dialogue in your mind and then maybe with your kids on each of these, and where do you set some of those kind of boundaries? Now, here's some things that parents don't talk about. I'm kind of doing the overview here first. But there's some truth about media. Number one is media is doing incredibly extensive research on your kids. If you think Nickelodeon, their budget is $60 million just to look at what kids are into. And so they're trying to influence a generation of kids because those kids will watch Nickelodeon and then the parents sometimes watch it and their commercials and that's how they make their money, see? So media is doing extensive research on your kids. If you want to learn about what your kids are up to and what's going on in the generation, media knows that. The other thing that we have to remember as parents is that art is not value neutral. Art typically has a, a, a message in it and a lot of media is art. When we think of art, it's not just a painting by you know, some famous painter. You know, it's art. Media is art. Okay? Students can um, absorb a huge amount of media. Okay? Today's young person can do something that, you know, I'm 61 years old. I can't do this. I cannot multitask like kids can, my kids. I have two kids who are uh, just completing their master's, and they can you know, be listening to music. They're, on, they're chatting on the phone. They're on their computer writing a paper because they have a book open, and they're kind of doing it all at the same time. And then if I come in, you know, they can kind of stop and have a conversation with me and just leave whoever they're talking on the phone with or whatever their deal is, okay? And plus, they're texting. You know, one time I was, when my daughter was in high school, I said, man, you are going so fast. She goes, yeah, I'm in 12 conversations. And, and she was proud of that, see? But the fascinating thing, I couldn't be in 12 conversations. I'd totally get it messed up. I'd write the wrong thing to the wrong person, and you know, I'd be writing to my wife and going, hey, looking forward to a hot night tonight, and you know, it'd be like you know, my friend Doug Fields or somebody who'd think I was a complete <laughs> idiot. So the point that I'm saying is, kids can absorb huge amounts of media, so you know, they're just so media conscious. Now, media also meets kids' uh, needs, because what does media do? Think about this with even rock stars, or any kind of media. Basically, uh, they meet kids' need for acceptance, for companionship, and for identification. So what are we going to do about that? Let's think of uh, you know, rock stars. You know, they totally are accepting of, of, of lifestyle choices that you as a parent may not want your kids living. They're, acceptable. They're accepting that. So it's important, again, kind of going back to it, that we become students of the culture. Uh, the worship of popularity and celebrity is a big deal when it comes to Twitter accounts, things like that. Um, technology is an isolator. So you have kids, some of your kids today, especially your kids who are a little bit older, they are isolated. With Media is amazing. So you've got boys who are doing amazing amount of gaming 
and it, they've isolated. The kids will say, I was talking with my friends. Did you really see your friends? No, we were just in a you know, chat or we were texting or whatever it might be. So remember that, that it isolates kids. And then also it, with media, um, kids tend to act out the drama of media. Okay? Um, I'm old enough to uh, be a guy who was involved in youth ministry who, you know, when Columbine happened, man, I was flown to Columbine, I spoke to kids, I did some assemblies, things like that. Well, what was fascinating about the Columbine guys from way a long time ago, you guys are pretty young, many of you, but was, was they were acting out the drama of media. Their media were, were some really intense, horrible gaming stuff that they were doing, but they were totally into some pornography things and they were into violent games and things like that. Well, then I get flown to Paducah because there was another killing. Guess what? Those guys were into the same, one guy was into the same exact thing, but his buddies all were into the same stuff. You go to Santee in San Diego, same kind of deal. What we learn is that there's a pattern. Now, just because your kids are, say, gaming and they like to game with violence, that doesn't mean that we're going to turn them into you know, killers at, at you know, Capo Valley High School or um, you know, Dana Hills or Tribuco or someplace. But it does mean that when ki- but kids like to act out the drama of media. And as parents, you know, this is just the kind of information that we want to make sure that we understand. So we're going to have to help kids evaluate media. Okay? And I think you have three options. Okay. One option is what I call the head in the sand. And there are parents everywhere who like to put their kids in a bubble. And so they're not going to let their kids really view much media. Maybe they're the ones who you know, don't have a computer in their home. They're the ones who throw out the TV. And again, I'm not opposed to somebody throwing out a TV if that's what they're, you know, they're in charge of their home. But they're going to isolate their kids. The problem that I see with that, frankly, is that those kids are going to become adults one day, and they're not going to be ready for this. By no means am I saying that your children at whatever age should watch you know, junk on TV or look at horrible movies or be, be free to do everything. But we are going to have to figure out a better way than probably the bubble or the head in the sand. Um, and, and in some ways, it's the same thing with restriction. Or, you can tell where I'm going to go with this, is that they the, learn to grow, discern, and help your children grow up. And that's what you've got to be able to do. Okay, you're preparing them, again, to be responsible adults. So that's where my preference goes when it comes to, to media stuff. Now, a lot of people would say, why would Jim even talk about TV? 20, kids see 20 hours a week of TV or more okay, in, in, in an American home. So TV is still influencing them big time. And what I've done is I've just kind of given you a list. I'm not going to spend time talking about it per se. But, you know, it's pretty fascinating for us to just understand the incredible influence, if you would, of, of television. Okay, but let's look at the world according to TV, because your kids get a warped view. You actually and I get a warped view from TV. First of all, for most TV, we're all young and beautiful. Okay, um, you know, you look at. And I was in Poland, and these people were totally into a television show that was so old, but they were into L.A. Law. It was like the number one show in Poland, and when they found out that I was kind of from semi the L.A. area. They thought everybody looked like the people in L.A., and everybody acted like the people in L.A., and everybody was rich, and everybody was white, interestingly enough, because, well, if you look at Friends, you you would think that those Friends, somebody would have an African-American or a Hispanic friend in New York City, because it's kind of like, you know, a very multicultural place, but you don't see that on TV, okay? It's actually fairly segregated when it comes to the TV, but anyway, we're all, you know, young and beautiful. We all um, let our children basically raise themselves. Uh, we're mostly white, like I say. Um, we all uh, think, all we think about is sex. 
we love vomit and other bodily function jokes, and everyone has um, money and all that great stuff. And, and what we forget, my friends, is that TV is so real that, for example, there's a medical show um, that, that's now not on, but it, it recently kind of went off. And during the time of the show, they received 250,000 requests for medical advice. And so a study at uh, Columbia University decided to look at who are these people that actually wrote to television stars, television actors, to the TV place, and actually to the make-believe hospital um, that was in Princeton, New Jersey. They wrote to these places and asked them medical advice. And so they said, who are these people? Are they, do, we, do we have that many crazy people in America? We probably do when it comes to a quarter, you know, a quarter of a million people. But guess what? These were kind of normal people like you and me, and they just go, we forgot. We were thinking we needed some help. And so you know, I, I, I went online and I wrote to the star to ask for medical advice. You know, I got this pain in my shoulder. Seriously? Seriously? But again, you know, TV in some ways is kind of real, Okay. So, let's, but let's go to some of the other types of media. Let's go to the, to the phone. Now, we need some what I call phone guardrails, okay? So I want to show you, another, this is actually a, a Coca-Cola commercial. It didn't make it to, uh, um, to television, but it made it to the internet. So let's take a look at this, uh, this commercial. Social media is great. It connects you to the world and the people you love. You can chat with your family or share a meal with friends. And watch cute little cats do unbelievable things. Look, she sticks her head out of the box. Look, she sticks her head out of the box. But there are times when social media can get in the way of the real world. Remember that? It's the thing that happens when you run out of battery. That's why we've developed the Social Media Guard. It takes the social out of media and puts it back into your life. Let's see how it works. social media guard get yours now i mean it's just a spoof but we sort of need social media type guards and and i, I kind of call them guardrails let me let me talk about the phone for just a minute the cell phone uh is, is obviously much more than a phone so one of the things you're going to have to decide for some of you this is too late but you're going to have to decide at what age do your kids get a phone and what are you going to do with that phone is the phone, why did you give your kids a phone? You gave your kids a phone most likely for protection, okay? And you gave your kids a phone for somehow communicating, but your friends, I mean, but your, your kids see the phone as an amazing gift of communication, play, toy, you know, a bazillion other things. So maybe it's time for us to say, what are, what's the marker? Who owns the phone? And what are they going to be able to do on the phone? For example, my friend David Peck, 
He's got four kids, uh, and him and his wonderful wife, Trina. So there's, they have six phones, okay? One of the things that they do is they actually dock their phone at 9.30 at night uh, at the kitchen. And there's times when he has texted, texted me past 9.30 at night, and I go, where are you? And he always writes, in the kitchen. He could be lying because I don't have any idea. But you know, he, even he, who's going to you know, still be on his phone sometimes, he's, it's there. So what that, why they did that was they started realizing that their older kids were taking their phones you know, into their bedroom, and they were not getting good sleep because kids were texting them at 12.30 or 2 or whatever it might be. So they pulled that back in. Then they decided that their kids were using the phone too often during school, so you know, easy to do with AT&T or Verizon or whatever. They just basically limited who they could call. And so could there be a call to mom or dad? Absolutely. They began to make decisions about the phone that with, with kind of a phone contract. So in your notes, you've got this phone contract. This is actually out of a book written by Doug Fields and uh, a friend of mine named Jonathan McKee. And uh, it's, it's, it may be too extensive for you, but they basically have a phone contract that says, look it, we own the phone. As long as you have a phone, you know, you're going to abide by these rules. A couple of basic rules is that if you call, depending on the age of your kids, um, this will be hard or easy, but if you call your kids, they need to answer. Okay. Um, I always laugh because I'll say to my girls, I'll go, hi, this is dad. I know you just saw that you looked at the phone and it was me. So yeah, you know, you're putting it aside, but eventually would you get back to me and call me? Thank you very much. Okay. Now I, my kids are older and they don't, I don't pay for their phone anymore. Um, and so, you know, they have the right to ignore me if they want. They actually take it now that they're older, they actually, you know, answer it a lot better than when they were, you know, in high school or whatever. But, you know, what are the phone guardrails that you and your spouse... Now, what are some phone guardrails that you're using for your kids? Go ahead. Give me some. They don't get one. They don't get one. Okay. Has, so yours has a passcode, and you don't give... And so your kids don't have a phone. Okay, that's simple. What else? No, so no... Okay, great. You use it for a phone. What, that's an amazing thing that phones are used to talk on. on. That's fantastic. What, what age are your kids? Ten. ten and a half. Okay, ten and a half. Ten and a half is probably too early to just be given everything. It's great, great job on your part. What else? Uh, I have high schoolers. Uh-huh. And, um, they have to plug it in out of their bedroom starting at 9 o'clock at night. Fantastic. Okay, good. So the, you know, good job. You guys are going great. This is good for some of you to hear because maybe you're not doing it like some of these guys are. What else? Anybody else have any things? The phone doesn't go in our bedroom. Phone doesn't go at all in the bedroom. Okay, good, good. Okay. Well, anyway, it's important to understand that, you know, you like that. You know, I had this right here. You can't, you know, you don't sleep with the, with the phone. One of the issues of the phone is that it's becomes more important, like when it comes to uh, discipline, we're going to talk next week about discipline, but when it comes to discipline, the phone sometimes is easier to take away than when your kid's in high school than the car keys. I mean, they would rather have the car taken away from them than the phone. And so the phone does become something that, what I find with the phone is when you have expressed expectations, when you develop a contract, your kids are going to feel much better about it because they know what's ahead. 
Instead of, you know, there, I, know parent, I know a mom who said she was driving with her child, found that their child was looking at something inappropriate, took the phone, threw it out the window <laughs> in anger, and all of a sudden, wait, I just lost $199 or whatever it was. But, in, you know, she just kind of did that in anger. But she had never said to the kid that was something that would be inappropriate. So in some ways, the mom was partly at fault. I'm sure there was a better way than taking the phone and throwing it out the, the deal, although I think there's times when I wanted to do that with my kids. But it's just better to set up the, those, kinds of, uh, you know, th- those kinds of contracts, if you would. Now, let's make sure that we understand. I want to talk about the MTV generation. I want to talk about the social media generation. The MTV generation is kind of you guys, okay? And, you know, as Robert Pittman, who was the founder of MTV, he said, we're not just creating a, a uh, music channel. We're creating a youth culture. So you, part of you, all of, in, even me, and I'm an old guy, we're partly influenced by the MTV generation. Now, what's fascinating about MTV is it's not as important to, to a new generation because it's not music anymore. It's kind of, you know, it's, there are a lot of kids watch MTV, believe me. But just so we understand this, uh, there's five media companies in the world, basically, huge media companies, and they kind of own it all. They're big conglomerates. And so they, there was a group called Viacom. You've all heard of Viacom. So they bought... Nickelodeon because there was really only Nickelodeon and Disney and they couldn't buy Disney because that's a part of another uh, huge media conglomerate. So they buy Nickelodeon. Why did they do that? For business sake. They wanted to have the business of the younger generation and so Nickelodeon was a good buy for them. It was an expensive buy but they did that. But kids at about age 10, 11, or 12 start getting bored with Nickelodeon. If you look at some of the programming of Nickelodeon, say between three and six, because sometimes that's kids whose parents are still, you know, they've come back from school, but their parents are kind of gone, still kind of latchkey type kids. Man, they're on Nickelodeon. So there's a little bit more sass. The music is a little bit different. The, you know, the family thing is just going on a little bit differently on, uh, you know, at that time period on, on some of their programming. So they're doing that not because they want to influence kids for a certain thing. They just want to make money, okay? And they want to keep those kids there. So then what happened was they were losing a general... After 12, nobody wanted to watch Nickelodeon. I mean, there were kids. I liked Nick at Night, by the way, still. So they moved the... They, they, Nick, uh, Viacom buys MTV. Pretty smart move on their part, okay? And paid a lot of money for MTV. So now, you know, Viacom owns, owns MTV. So now what they have is at one time... Uh, the average high school student watched 10 hours a week of MTV, okay? But you kind of get bored with certain types of music, and when you get older, you're into more of the, you know, classic-type stuff like Beatles or Beach Boys or whatever, or maybe you're interested in the 80s and the 90s, and MTV is surely not going to do that as much. So what they went to was VH1. Who owns VH1? Viacom. And then you watch CBS when you're old, and then you die. <laughs> so what happened was is... It was a business deal. But interesting enough, when you go back to the MTV side, a lot of the people as executives at Viacom were not letting their kids watch MTV, but because they could make money. It's like the tobacco industry. You know, they're, they're, they sell and make tobacco, but, but they don't let their kids smoke, or they don't smoke because they know it's bad for you. See? Fascinating. Okay? So that's kind of where we came from. Where they come from is devices, devices, devices. Okay, a couple of things that parents need to be aware of. And again, I could do this in three hours and I'm you know, just about ready to wind this down so we can talk a little bit about drug and alcohol and then get some Q&A. But we, we have to become aware of a, a couple of things. One is a, a, a new, somewhat new, um, thing called Snapchat. 
okay? Snapchat, I can take a picture and I can send it to you and in 30 seconds it goes away. So a lot of kids really like Snapchat and I happen to think Snapchat is, you know, ridiculous. Here's why. Because the founders of Snapchat, they were college students, by the way. You know, you got college, you know, college student, in, in, well, college students, um, you know, did MySpace. Uh, college students, a college student did Facebook, I mean, et cetera. I mean, these are young people who typically, you know, do this. So Snapchat was created by a couple of college students. And in an email that I have actually seen, the email said, this is one of the greatest sexting devices because you can sext and then it goes away. And so what, when they were selling it, and they were, when they were selling it, they were selling it partly as a sexting deal because sexting is so big. One out of five kids who are represented here at a certain age, when they're, by the time they're 11 and older, have been sexted or will have sexted. So the fascinating side to this is that they saw it as a sexting site. But, so kids think it's safe to sext because they go, great, I, you know, I'm gone. I can take a picture of my naked body. And really, we were talking about sex so much you know, the last two weeks, but um, you know, they take a picture of their naked body and they send it, and in 30 seconds, it's gone. However, what kids don't, well, they forget because they can do this. Within 30 seconds, you can take a picture of the picture, and now you've got it, okay? And really, nothing ever goes away. So there's a lot of parents who are going, well, that's kind of cool, because, you know, kids, most of what's going on with Snapchat is, is fun and somewhat innocent, but what you're doing is we, you've got a device now that, that, you know, the kids have, and if they have Snapchat on it, um, it's, it's not such a good thing. My suggestion is that you delete it. Your, some of your older kids will go, you are, you know, ridiculous, I'm not using it to sext. I understand that. But I still am questioning if, if we should have it. Um, some advice to friends. Um, I mean, to parents. Be friends with your kids on Facebook. Be friends with your kids on Instagram. Be friends with your kids on social media. Okay. However, never respond to it. So if I'm my, my daughter's friend on Facebook, my job is to never make a comment. Okay. Because you know, that's then being in, in their group at their time. But by being their friend, you begin to, you know, to see what it is. Now, some parents are totally overboard. They totally stalk their kids. And I'm not going to tell you not to do that. I'm just simply saying, you know, you can get obsessive compulsive on this too, but be their friend. So our, our rule at our house was social media, yes, except we're your friends, okay? And actually, when our kids started, we were also, we also had to know their password, Okay. So those are some things that you can kind of think through. Now, some people are going to choose not to, you know, even have that. Fantastic. But again, somewhere in there, what you don't want your kids to do is sort of cheat and do it behind your back, okay? So eventually, you're going to have to get to a place where they have some of the social media, where they're using social media, but you're teaching them, you know, to use social media, you know, responsibly, if you would. Let me talk just a bit about, uh, about bullying. Um, one of the aspects of social media that we're seeing is that cyberbullying is becoming huge. And although this is not just cyberbullying, but 160 kids stayed home from school today. 160, there's 160, 160,000 kids stayed home from school today because they were bullied. 160,000 tomorrow, 160,000 yesterday. That is huge. The majority of the kids who stayed home because they were afraid stayed home because they were cyberbullied, Okay. So when we think about that, the whole aspect of cyberbullying, it's important that we help our kids, younger or the better, to understand that it's possible to be cyberbullied. If they're cyberbullied, two things. One is they don't ever respond, 
okay? Because what happens with a cyber bully is if your kid responds to, this, to the bullying, then the cyber bully gets one point, and they're pretty jazzed about that, so they'll keep doing it, okay? If they're just ignored, after a while, they're not going to do anything. At the same time, I feel the pain of kids who've been bullied online because those kids, um, they feel terrible. They think their world is ended. You know, they're, they're spreading lies, they're, and it's, a lot of it is sexual, okay? If the parents get involved, the cyber bully gets five points. So sometimes as parents, we want to fix it, the mean girl, mean guy thing, but it's actually better to do the right thing, and if it's anything cyberbullied that has to do with sexual or, or dangerous or violence or any of those kind of things, lies, whatever, then you, know, you take it to the police, you take it to the principal at the school. Uh, our, our youngest daughter, she was in eighth grade at Marco. Uh, we live in Dana Point. Um, some kid sent a picture of his penis to her, and um, she actually went, gross. Is that what I think it is? She said it you know, in front of her father, and I'm now looking at a little boy's penis that I wasn't really excited about. And um, so we called the police. And she did not want us to call the police, but we needed to. The police come out. They, they, they were so good. They were so kind to, to our daughter. Um, our daughter was kind of frustrated at us because we did this. Um, police came and talked to the, to the boy who did it. They found the... She didn't know who it was. She didn't know, she didn't know the... Uh, you know, where the, the email came from or whatever, and so they easily found that. And, um, you know, this boy was, was rightly reprimanded. Now, the interesting side was is that he sent it to so many girls that day that no one really ever knew that it was our daughter who made the call or that we made the call. It'd be fascinating, okay? But that boy needed to be stopped, okay? That kind of stuff is, you know, incredibly offensive. Um, it's important for us to know. So I'm going to hold it right there because I want to get into... Uh, drugs and alcohol, but I just wanted to, th- what I, so what I did was, instead of going down deep, I just kind of gave you an overview, but it's something that I want us to kind of talk about in a little bit, okay? But let me talk about um, another very important aspect of parenting. We're kind of doing some morals and value type stuff today, and if, and if you look at it, it's on the next page. We're going to just briefly go through some things on uh, drugs and alcohol, okay? So as we think about drug and alcohol use and abuse, so it's kind of a weird transition, but we're still there. Um, as we think about this, I want to make sure that we as parents understand gateway drugs, okay? Gateway drugs mean that the first time a kid will drink in the United States is age 12. When Jimmy Burns went to Anaheim High School in the 70s, a long time ago for me, I'm 61 years old, the first age was 14 and a half. So the, the drinking, first drink stage has changed that much over, you know, a lot of years, but still, now kids will have their first drink at age 12, Okay. And fascinating enough, 85% of Christian kids will have a drink. Now, if they lived in the city of Irvine, because it's the only statistic I know in terms of one city, it's a little bit higher. Isn't that interesting? Because there was actually a study done in the city of Irvine. So kids, it won't be 85%. Now, remember, I said kids who go to church. These are, are Christian kids. So, and I'm not saying that every kid, who, if, you have, if a kid tries a, you know, a beer or glass of wine, that, you know, they're, they're, it's over for them. I'm just simply saying that that's where it starts, and it starts with beer and wine. And it starts at age 12. That doesn't mean if you have a 12-year-old, I'm not saying all your 12-year-olds drink, but there's some 12-year-olds who sure drink, or there's some kids who drink even younger, okay? So it starts with beer and wine, and the gateway is huge. Then you move to nicotine. You say, you know, I don't see a lot of kids smoking, you know, when we go to the Spectrum or if we're at Mission Viejo Mall or if we're at the beach or whatever. But, but the truth is, is that, you know, there are still a number of kids who smoke. 
smoking, nicotine, is one of the, lar- the, the major gateways. If you see kids smoking, it's almost for sure that they're doing harder alcohol. It's almost pretty sure that they are doing marijuana. Here's why. Of the kids who smoke cigarettes, 80 plus percent of them will smoke marijuana. Of the kids who don't smoke cigarettes, it'll only be 20% or less. So what we're saying here is that, again, it's a gateway. So nicotine is a huge gateway. Nicotine, you know, obviously lung cancer, heart disease, but it's partly the part of if they're smoking, then they're going to go further. Now, there's only one segment of the, of the population where smoking is growing, and it's not growing much, but it's still growing, and that's with girls 15 to 25. Anybody want to know why? Weight. Weight loss, okay? So it's weight loss, and so what happens is they're thinking they're not going to get addicted, that they can handle this, and so then they end up getting addicted to this. One of the fascinating things about nicotine is that your brain has neurotransmitters. And if you lose your serotonin level and the neurotransmitters kind of then split apart, um, people who have anxiety or have other issues, sometimes they'll, they'll have to use uh, Prozac or other types of things for that. Okay, well, what we're now learning, Stanford, Harvard, um, some incredible study at Johns Hopkins, is that when your brain separates, that if you smoke cigarette, that nicotine will do some of this. It will raise the serotonin level. It'll put the neurotransmitters in your brain back. That's totally a, you know easy, you know, there's a lot more to it. But the fascinating side to it is that that's one of the reasons why it's one of the biggest and hardest addictions to get off of. Actually, heroin is, harder, is, is actually easier to get off of. Heroin, the detox is horrible. You almost die. But you get through it. It gets through your body and whatnot. With nicotine, it's, it's so strong. So nicotine is an important thing. That's why you don't want your kids you know, experimenting with, with nicotine. The, the addiction comes pr- fairly quick. Then you go to beer and wine. I mean, excuse me, then you go to, to, uh, to uh, harder alcohol and marijuana, okay? A couple things about marijuana that we as parents just have to understand. And if you have younger kids, I'm so thrilled you're hearing this because, you know, the older kids, the older your kids are, and if you haven't had conversations like this with your kids, um, you know, the harder it is sometimes. But marijuana, there's a lot of stuff on the internet that's really, you know, weird about marijuana, okay? And it will be legal. You know, some of you who have younger kids will grow up with, you know, your kids will grow up with marijuana being legal. I mean, it's just a matter of time, okay? It's already legal in Washington and in Colorado. We're all watching it really carefully, and there's a lot more um, DUIs, but they're using the word D now in a different way because of people who are smoking pot. It's legal, so they're smoking pot, so they're high, and they're driving, okay? But a couple things about marijuana. Number one, today's marijuana is about 5 to 20% stronger, and sometimes it's laced with something else. So even if you smoked pot, 10 years ago, kids today are smoking a different kind of pot, okay? The other thing that I would say is that um, when it comes to marijuana, everybody agrees that it's possible to get what we call amotivational syndrome, which means your brain becomes lazy and lethargic. So what's weird about smoking pot is I could smoke pot and I would be doing just fine. Jeff, on the other hand, smokes pot together with me, and his brain just sort of dissolves, and he gets amotivational syndrome, and so his brain kind of stops growing. I, I had a person, you know, Dana Point, who used to be my gardener. He's a great guy. I love this guy, and I always thought he had a speech impediment, so, you know, I'm kind of, you know, what's out there, so I just said to him one day with my wife, Kathy, there, who said this was the most ridiculous thing to say, I go, do you have a speech impediment? And he goes, no, I just smoke too much pot, and I have amotivational syndrome, and so what that means is his, his brain literally, he couldn't do the same kind of work, okay? And it actually affected some of his, his speech ability, okay? Great guy, wonderful Christian, goes to Shoreline, is a great guy, but the truth is, is that 
by smoking pot, not any more than some of his friends. It wasn't like he was the most major pothead, but this is the kind of thing that our kids need to understand because they're gonna hear more and more, especially with the legalization of marijuana, that you know, it's medical and it's, and it's okay. Well, there's certain things about it that's not okay, okay? And then also harder alcohol. We have to make sure that we understand a couple of things about alcohol. Now, I'm not one who says, you know, don't drink. I don't drink, okay? And I don't drink because my dad was an alcoholic. My grandfather died of cirrhosis of the liver, um, raging alcoholic. So I have a biological predisposition toward al alcoholism. I just don't drink for three reasons. Christy, Rebecca, and Heidi, my kids, okay? But what you do is your deal. The Bible just simply says don't be drunk. It doesn't say don't, don't drink wine or whatever. So, you know, you, you'll have to figure that out. But the point being is, if you have alcoholism in your system, and at least 25% of you do, like me, that then there's conversations we have to have with our kids. So at age 13, I sat Christy down first, she's my oldest, and I said, there is something called a biological predisposition toward alcoholism, and you got it, okay? And that means that you have a greater chance, a greater propensity of becoming an alcoholic, okay? And, I mean, she's 13, okay? And I said, and also, how you're going to know that is if you have a high tolerance toward alcohol. So again, how are you explaining this to a 13-year-old? It's hard, and I'm using terms more for you. But what that means is all alcoholics have a high tolerance for alcohol. They can be little bitty, teeny, weeny people. We think it's just the big Samoan football player, but it's also a little tiny person. They can consume vast amounts of alcohol. Um, there was a season in my life where I did some intake with drug and alcohol stuff, and um, You'd always say, how much do you drink? And they'd always go, a few beers. Well, they're not in rehab for a few beers. I just want to guarantee you. So when they get past the dishonest stage to the honest stage, they would all brag about how much alcohol they could drink. Most alcoholics are what we call functioning alcoholics. They drink below their tolerance level until they get to a certain age or a certain amount of consumption of alcohol, and then it kind of fizzles. My dad was like that. He, he, was, a very, he was a successful businessman, but he, he drank below his tolerance level until finally, as he got older, his, his tolerance level changed, and he started drinking more, and then it became kind of a mess. But he was never the guy who was in Skid Row. Only 5 to 10% of them ever make it to Skid Row. See? So what I said to my kids is this. At age 13, I said, if you will choose not to drink until you're 18. Now, it's illegal to drink at 18. Okay, but if you'll choose, I, I just want to get them through high school. I said, if you'll choose not to drink until 18, I will buy you a car. Okay, now I'm not suggesting that you all do that. Okay, and I didn't say what kind of a car. I said it was a car with wheels and an engine. Okay, it's my $18,000 decision though, because I bought used cars, roughly around 6,000 bucks a piece. I would still, I would do it again. And I'm not saying that you parent by bribing. You won't hear me talk about that, you know, next week. But again, my, I was so concerned about my kids making decisions early. Once you're 18 and you're an adult, or sort of an adult, um, you can still make really poor decisions, but then you're going to make those on your own, okay? And, and again, I wasn't even saying to my kids never drink. My point was I don't want them drinking because kids get sicker quicker, and you know, they, they make really poor decisions. So one of the things you're going to have to figure out is what are you going to talk to them about with marijuana? What are you going to talk to them about with, with alcohol? And then we go to the harder stuff. You know, cocaine, um, heroin is huge here in South County, and it's with good families, okay? My, my daughter, Becca, is counseling at Vanguard right now. She has 12 clients, and one of the count, one of the girls yesterday said that she went away to a party this weekend. She did cocaine for the first time. She had sex with a boy she didn't know because she was high, and this is a kid who's a religion major studying for ministry, okay? Well, she made some pretty poor choices this weekend, Okay. 
if you would, and now again, I've never met this kid, I don't even know the kid's name, but Becca was just telling me the story, but I'm thinking how amazing that this is somebody who, you know, is now going to carry some baggage with her, and part of it was because she was kind of moving through the gateway stuff pretty quick, okay? My guess is that she wouldn't have had sex with somebody that she didn't know if she wouldn't have been high on cocaine. And she was depressed because of a guy breakup and all that, so she didn't know how to cope with her stress properly, okay? Now, I want to bring Hillary up, my, the star here. And um, Hillary, not only, last week she talked about, we, when we were talking about sexual abuse and things, and she kind of talked about some of that stuff, that what she teaches. But she also has a background in helping um, college students understand some of the issues of, of alcohol. And why I want you to hear this is because, again, your kids typically aren't in college you know, here, but you want to hear this kind of stuff because this is the kind of stuff you as a parent want to talk about, and then we're going to come back and, and talk about that. Hillary, you're on. Thanks, Jim. So you guys are like, wait, she has experience in doing the sexual abuse prevention education and working with the college students. How old is this girl? I'm a little like 50-year-old person stuck in a 31-year-old body, but truly actually 31. Um, but it was, it was a super fun time in my life. And also, um, so it started with um, working in the community with um, sexual assault prevention education. And then we partnered with a local university um, put on a, an event called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes where it's, it's a men's march to stop sexual abuse and rape. And so we um, partnered with them through that connection. They ended up um, working there as a health educator. And so what we would educate the students on and it, it, was, it was based in prevention again because our goal was to educate the students enough where they would never have to face some of the the effects of what we were educating on. So whether it was, we did um, alcohol abuse prevention education, we did stress management workshops, we did sleep hygiene workshops, um, and we worked with our Greek life, we worked with athletes. Um, the athletes were actually required to go through four different um, wellness programs with us, and one of them was alcohol abuse prevention. And um, let me tell you, I worked with peer educators, so there were four college students, there were 22 and then four college students that we would educate with, so it was peer-to-peer, -peer, and they're going, hey, I know what you're going through, this is, you know, this is a thing that we're facing, I get it, and they wouldn't do the educational seminars that we would do with the football team. So I always had to do those ones, and this little person, and I was, at, at the time I was probably like 26 or 27, I'm walking in and it was just like, listen, shh. And they're like, what? And it's like, I'm talking to all these big dudes about alcohol, and we would do sexual health stuff with them, and it was hilarious, and it was great. But the thing that was the best part about that is afterwards, when they would come up and go, I had no idea any of this stuff. And these are the guys who, a lot of times, they're getting the reputation for being out on campus, for partying the most. And so we would get a lot of students who were at high risk for um, these high-risk behaviors, which are any behaviors that have high consequence um, or high chance for consequence. So what we would make sure that we talk to them about, and the reason that I want to make sure that um, you guys get a chance to hear about this is because a lot of the students that were coming in didn't know anything about the effects of alcohol on their bodies. And so they were making decisions based on no education. So they're drinking large amounts of alcohol, not knowing that what they were doing is actually called binge drinking or high... Um, yeah, binge drinking. So what that basically is, is just uh, for guys, it's five or more drinks in, in a period of two hours. 
And for girls, it's four or more drinks in a period of two hours. And it's any drinking behavior that's going to get your blood alcohol level, your BAC, over 0.08. And um, 0.08 is where the, a lot of the severe, more severe um, uh, effects start kicking in. Because what the students didn't realize is that alcohol, they know it's a depressant. And so we go, what do you guys think? What do you think that that means? And they're like, you, you drink it when you're depressed or you drink it and it makes you depressed. And then there was always a story about the crier like that they hang out with who drinks and just cries all the time. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, it's not that. That's not why. But we would let them know that actually what's happening is that the alcohol depresses their central nervous system. So what's, what happens when they're drinking as more and more alcohol starts entering their body, and we can, we can metabolize one drink an hour is what we would let them know. And so one drink, and this is the interesting part, is that a standard size of a standard size drink is much smaller than any of the students ever thought. So um, a standard size drink of beer is a 12 ounce can. So like yeah yeah okay like that's about the size of like when they're going to parties and stuff and it's the red solo cup it's around that size. And then, but then we would start talking a little bit more about, so that's one drink an hour that your body can metabolize to keep yourself at a low risk drinking level. Um, and then they're going like, oh, I drink way more than that in an hour. And it's like, okay, well then, and then we'll start talking about an average size glass of wine. Now they weren't so concerned about this unless they were drinking like wine from a box. So, but for, but cause there's, a, they don't bother. So, um, their thing was, and it's more, it's more interesting for me now as an adult, um, where an average or a standard size drink of wine is actually four ounces. So if you think of a can of beer and knowing that um, it's like a, a third of that. Wait, am I doing my math right? Guys, thank you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sociology major, not math. So... Um, so what they were, so they're like, like, that's a small amount. And that's, that's one of those an hour that our body can metabolize. And then as we started talking about hard alcohol and like 80 proof stuff, it's, an, it's 1.5 ounces. So it's like a shot, a shot. And so they're going, I only had one drink last night. And I'm like, really? How long did you pour the alcohol into the cup? Okay. And then you put soda in it. And then that was your one drink. That was like seven drinks right there. And they're having seven drinks within, you know, a two hour period. And that's when their central nervous system starts sh shutting down. And what they're, they're, we were talking about the effects of that and, um, different things, gross motor skills, fine motor skills first. And they, they started to understand that, okay, yes, alcohol is a depressant. So when I have that first drink and I start to chill down a little bit, that's my central nervous system starting to like slow down a little bit. Okay. I get that. Except what was happening is that there was more and more drinks after that in very short periods of time. And what we we're experiencing at our university and we were, um, one of the 15 state universities in Michigan, and but we were in a pretty rural area. We were kind of attached to a, a metropolitan area, but sort of on the outskirts. And we were finding that a lot of students were, that was like their main thing to do on the weekends. It was to drink. Um, that was their social connection. And so um, what we were finding is that we were having a lot of instances of alcohol poisoning because the students weren't aware of how the, how the alcohol was actually affecting their body, how often to have those drinks. And it was, you know, freshmen to seniors. And if there were any kids who um, violated their housing contract, which is they aren't, you know, supposed to have alcohol in their living arrangements, then we were seeing them in our offices and putting them through a counseling program where we actually were able to help them see that they're drinking behaviors were really, really risky. 
and asking them, how much are you drinking? How, how often do you black out? And then explaining to them, do you know what that is? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, like, then because my brain and whatever. And it's like, it's your central nervous system shutting down. It's not sending, you're not sending, you're not firing on all cylinders up here anymore. You're connecting to, you have your long-term, your long-term memory, which is why you can black out all night and completely know how to walk, how to tie your shoe, how, where you live, all that stuff. Your long-term memory is intact, but your short-term memory isn't. And that's because of the rate and the speed at which you're consuming your alcohol. So we would actually teach them. And, and this is like, you know, kind of like really basic stuff that probably a lot of us already know but forget over time. And what we were finding, too, is that um, what we needed to do was to teach our students how to party smart. And so we would actually have, like, party smart kits that our Greek life could, you know, buy from us. And we would go in and do, for some of their safety stuff, we would let them know these effects of alcohol. But um, so a lot of what we would do is let them know, eat a large meal before you go and, and spend your time drinking. Make sure that you're drinking one drink per hour. Here's what a drink looks like. Between your drink and your next drink, drink a glass of water. And making sure that they're aware of, of, like, you know, just being educated on how to make some of these decisions. I'm trying to think, what was the other stuff? Oh, yeah, go to parties in, in a group where a lot of times what we were finding, too, is a lot of instances of acquaintance rape that was happening on campus linked to some of this high-risk drinking behavior. And so we would let them know, go to, go to a party together in a group and don't leave without every single person in your group. Don't put your drink down when you're at a party. Don't let someone else bring you a drink. And so some of you guys who are going, my kid goes to parties, they don't drink. If there's drinking going on at the parties and somebody brings them a drink and it's like, oh, it's just soda, it's cool, there's still some high risk there depending on who gave them the drink, what kind of stuff was in the drink, whatever it is. And so we would let them know that those are some really practical ways that if they're going to party, that they can party smart. And so part of what Jim's letting you guys know about and talking about with the social media is the tendency to want to put kids in bubbles. And, and, you know, I'm not saying go and tell your kids they can drink and this is just how they can do it. But being able to start that dialogue so it's not a monologue anymore and you being fully equipped and aware of the information and the way that alcohol is affecting the bodies because it is starting really early. I, the first time that I drank alcohol was in seventh grade. And I'm... I'm it's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about ministering to this age group is because I know I remember I'm, that's all the stuff that's going on and being able to be a person along with you and partnering with you to be um, you as the number one influencers in the lives of your student to to equip and and walk with you and as part of the role of the church is what um, Jim was talking about. So um, I probably didn't say everything that I wanted to say, but I could pretty much talk about this the entire day. So um, I'm just going to, that's that. But um, yeah, guys, this is just really good stuff to even just to be aware of just as parents and knowing um, how you can equip your kids in that dialogue. Are we like lucky to have her with our junior high? How many of you are parents of junior hires in here? Yeah, a lot of you. That's right on. Now, the reason I, I'm so happy that she did this, because you're going, well, she's talking to college students, plus she's telling them drink responsibly instead of not drink, you know, or whatever. The reason I'm telling, I want to do this for you guys is because you don't start talking to your kids when Hillary was talking to college students. You talk at whatever age, because in the last two weeks, I've been saying that the more positive sex education kids receive at home, the less promiscuous they'll be. Well, guess what? It's the same kind of material. The more positive 
value-centered that you ta- and teaching them about drugs and alcohol. And frankly, a lot of us don't know that stuff. I mean, today's generation, how many, any teachers in here? Okay. So do you guys do D.A.R.E. program anymore in your school? Fantastic. Because, huh? Red, Red Ribbon Week, sure. But Red Ribbon Week and D.A.R.E. is a, I mean, there's, they, they kind of combine, but D.A.R.E. is also a longer program. And for most places in the United, in the United States, they pulled the D.A.R.E. program because of finances. And it was kind of done through, you know, the police and whatnot. But the fascinating side to it is, so, so kids don't know this stuff. And most parents don't understand some of the things that she was just saying, okay? Now, let me give you a couple more thoughts on this. Number one is, why do kids drink? Well, you know, they, they start with peer pressure, okay, or the pressure to conform. But they drink because it works. You know, it, drink, alcohol, by the way, alcohol is a drug. It's mood and mind-altering. It's also a food because it has calories, not good food, okay? And it's also a poison because, as she said, you put enough alcohol into your system and it, and it goes down. But wh- why do kids drink or drug? Same thing. You know, drinking is a drug. So why do they do that? It works. Okay? And, and secondly, it can, it, it's dependable. See, what we want to do is scare our kids to say, if you drink, then, you know, you could get in an accident, you could do this. Most of the time, it makes them feel good. And so if they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or you are yelling at them or they got bad grades or they got cyberbullied or whatever, um, so if they put alcohol or a drug into their system, it worked. It, it took away some of the pain and deadened their pain. And what you see kids doing at a pretty young age, and the reason I wanted my kids not to drink at a young age, was because it teaches them how to cope with stress improperly. Okay, so one of the things that alcohol does is it teaches them how to not know how to cope with stress. They cope with stress by putting alcohol or drugs into their system. So we've got a generation of a lot of people who do that. There's people in this room who would do that right now, okay? And sometimes we even have to watch our own lives in terms of what do we do when we come home from work or things like, I have this headache. And if you have a headache every day and you just go, I need some Advil, is there something wrong with Advil? No, but you're teaching them that you can medicate yourselves, okay, with whatever it is. So, you know, kids, kids drink and kids drug because it, it works and it makes them feel good and it's dependable. And, and their parents aren't dependable always. Their, their uh, relationship with their friends aren't dependable. School's not dependable, but drugs can become dependable. But as parents, we've got to understand how do kids start drinking and drugging? First of all, they start in what we call the experimental use phase. What was the age that, kid, for, that oftentimes is the first drink? Twelve. Okay, so that's the experimental use phase. A lot of times they don't like the taste, some, and you know, if they put a cigarette in their mouth, they don't even you know, want to inhale it, but that's when they start, age 12, and that's the experimental phase. Most kids will go through some kind of an experimental phase. Then we move pretty quickly to what we call the social use phase. Begins to happen in some places with middle school, depending on your kid. It happens a lot in high school, where you're in the social use phase. They can still be leaders at the church, but they're now in a social use phase because maybe they have some, a friend group where it's more social. They feel comfortable holding the beer. At experimental phase, they may not feel comfortable holding that, that beer. They feel awkward or taking a drink or having a cigarette you know, between their, their you know, fingers or whatever. But by the time they get to social use, now they're doing it socially. They may not even be drunk. They may be just sipping on the beer the entire night because um, you know, hopefully you've had conversations with your kids about this. Okay. Then we move to what we call the dependency stage. The dependency stage is not addiction. That's the next stage. But the dependency stage is a stage that's actually pretty dangerous. They can still be leaders in the youth group. 
Maybe they haven't violated their values with this, but if they go to a prom, if they go to a big event, then they're, they're drinking because that's what you do. You are dependent on that, that to, uh, to, as part of the party or as part of, uh, of the event. The Burns family, my family, you know, not my extended family, not my family, but my extended family, you know, Burns Christmas party, there's always alcohol. Why? Because, you know, I've my brothers drink. My that side of the family drinks. Okay, so that's going to be a natural part. You know, any of the of our our parties didn't have alcohol, and that was always kind of weird. In, in fact, you know, I had a brother or two that actually brought alcohol to our house, um, just because they were de- they were dependent. If they're going to have a good time, they equated good time with that. That's the dependency stage. The dependency stage. A lot of times, they can still get by without you even knowing what's going on. I mean, maybe you know they've had a drink or two, or you know, come home because they overdid it a little bit, or they smell you smell cigarette smoke or whatever. And and where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, don't just think that the cigarette smoke can't, comes from you know their friends or whatever. Children see, children do, so to speak, and they imitate their friends. And then we come to the addiction stage, and that's where you begin to see them violating values, not doing as well in school. And, and that's a stage that, with parents, I'm not saying it's too late. I'm just simply saying you have a lot more work. You've got to roll up your sleeves and do a lot more work there. So what do we do? We help them through prevention. Okay? We've got to have a plan. Years ago, I wrote a book called Drug Proof Your Kids. It's not out anymore here in the United States. Big deal in Australia. It's kind of the D.A.R.E. program in Australia. But with Drug Proof Your Kids, it was a plan. What's the plan? So we want to create a plan, just like we would create a plan with having conversations with our kids about sex, we want to create a plan for, we talked a lot about plans actually today with creating a media safe home. So as parents, we're just developing these plans. We are creating a media safe home plan. And what's cool about it is these fine folks, their plan might be different than them. That's still okay because you're, you're the leaders of your home. But lead, and lead with a plan. So, you know, don't just parent by circumstance and chance. Way too many of us parent by circumstance and chance. Or we think because our kids come to church and they have a really cool, you know, junior high pastor that everything's going to be okay. Well, I got news for you. That's not necessarily always the case, okay? All studies show that when parents are active and involved in the issues of the day that we've been talking about for the last three weeks, that if parents are involved, things will go better, okay? Will they go perfect? No, okay? So, kind of did a curve at you because we talked about, you know, kind of creating a media-safe home and media as well as kind of the drug and alcohol thing, but let's take a, a little bit of time for some Q&A. It's a great question. Is anybody putting any parameters on where you put your phone when your kids are, are driving? Actually, that should be a part of your phone contract, that if you find that your kids texted while they were driving, if they were driving the car, um, then you should probably restrict them immediately or take the phone away from them. So, you know, that, I would say that's a perfect part, that's a perfect illustration of, you know, having that planned out. Make it a big deal. Make it a rite of passage. You know, whatever age your kid gets a phone, you know, here's your phone. Here's the contract that we're going to have with it. So here's what the expectations are. If the expectations don't work, then, uh, you know, if you don't abide by those, here are the consequences. So because you've had all that now, now you don't have to parent by going, you know, I have to take this phone away. I never told you this. Now you just say, I'm so bummed. I've got to take the phone away because, you know, you were texting or you were talking on the phone without, you know, Bluetooth or whatever. Bummer. But, you know, that's what would we say? Oh, it's two weeks. Okay, you don't have the phone for two weeks. 
My daughter Heidi um, is a uh, social media goddess, she thinks. And um, if any of you live in Dana Point, she was on the cover of the Dana Point Times this week. Really a cool story about what she does. Um, but she lost her phone on Friday. She was at a Lakers game. <laughs> and she was in an Uber. They then said they couldn't take her to the Lakers game for some reason with somebody else or something. She left the phone there, so she lost her phone. So all weekend she was without her phone. She goes, it was harder than hard because she, she, you know, she, her life is connected to that phone. So she went and got a phone today, and it cost her a bunch of money. I bet she won't do that again. But it was kind of a funny thing. But if you, t- if you remove the phone, I mean, remove the phone when you've had those kind of things. But great input. Yeah, great question, great question. Yeah, great, great question. It's the same answer that I would give on the sexual history, if you would. I would oftentimes, I, this is my own opinion, you'll have to take it with what, what you want to do, but I would say the reason I am so passionate about you not being involved in this stuff is because I made some poor decisions. Now, I don't want to go into all those poor decisions, and I don't think you should tell them every little detail and, and, or, or make it so... You should have seen one time when I was absolutely you know, crazy drunk. I, I don't think we... And we parents sometimes can do that, especially dads, okay? But I think we say, I'm so passionate about it, partly because I made some poor choices, and I don't want you to make those same poor, poor choices. All studies, all experts say this, and all studies show this, that if parents have open, honest conversations with their kids about whatever they kind of did, but not every detail, the better. So that's my, that's my take on it. I know there's other people who would say, never talk to them about this, but very few. Okay. And, and they don't have stati- or the, you know, the studies to back them up. Studies say, share with passion, I kind of blew it here. You know, like my, my wife, and I, if, if you ever see my wife, we sit either right back there or back there in the 9 o'clock service. My wife, who is like, she told my kids when they asked, you know, did, did you, well, they asked me because they assumed I probably smoked pot. I never did. But they go, so did you guys ever smoke pot? And Kathy goes, you know, I did once when I was in ninth grade. My kids rolled over laughing <laughs> and mocked her, just going, I can't believe, Mom, if we lined up, you know, a thousand people, you would be the last person, you know, that ever did that. And, and at first, Kathy was afraid that by saying that, that they'd go, oh, well, then if mom can smoke pot, then I'll go smoke pot. Absolutely the opposite. It, it freed them up. We had good conversation. We still mock Kathy about that, too. But <laughs> I'll just tell you that. Now you can all tell her that if you see her on Sunday. So you were talking about prevention. Uh, what are your thoughts on this method? Uh, not whether it works or not. But in my right. case, when I was little, um, my dad gave me a sip of, well, he offered me a sip of his drink. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I smelled it and I was done. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't want to. Very interesting. And yeah. I never had hard liquor yeah. until I was in my probably uh, late 20s. And even then, it was just one time and that was it. I just never had the desire to drink yeah. or smoke. Yeah. And I saw my dad drink and smoke, not heavily, but he was mm-hmm. a social, so, social, social drinker. drinker. That yeah. worked for me. Yeah. So what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Actually, I'm afraid of those. Of those. You typically see it more in Europe. Are you Canadian? So you're going to see it more in Canada than here uh, because, um, you know, we'll mock the Canadians, eh? Um, But you'll see that more in Europe. But Europe has a, you know, what's interesting is Europe does not have a good uh, rate. I mean, the alcoholism rate is pretty strong. They sometimes will allow kids to start drinking and not just have a sip. You want a sip of my beer? Do you want to have a sip of my glass of wine or, you know, even harder stuff? But what we're worried, what I'm worried about is that 
it's making it normal. It's a marker. I talked about markers last week in terms of when kids could date, things like that. Well, to me, the alcohol thing is a marker. I don't want kids going, God, this tasted pretty good or this was kind of neat. It didn't affect me because you had one little sip you know, of something. And so I would probably suggest that, although I'm going against the grain of some cultures, I would suggest that that probably not take place um, because I don't see any benefit for it. The fascinating side to it is you, your dad, you said your dad was a social drinker. So that, to me, says he drank in moderation. You didn't see him as an alcoholic and you didn't see him drunk. You know, some Christians are not going to like what I'm going to say. But, but, but people who drink in, social, in, in moderation, their kids do not have a higher rate of alcoholism. And they actually have an, a, an okay view. So if you're a teetotaler or if you drink in moderation, there's not that much difference. Now, I choose not to drink because I wanted, because of the alcoholism in my family, I wanted my kids to, to at least see somebody who loves life and loves God and you know, doesn't have to you know, drink at all. I mean, I probably actually would kind of like to drink, okay? I mean, I would like to have a glass of wine you know, at a romantic dinner or something with Kathy. But the point that I'm saying is, is that I don't want kids to see that that's a way of life at a young age. Because what, you didn't do it. You're the perfect illustration that your dad's thing worked for you. But on the other hand, if a kid started, got a taste of, of, and became familiar to him, and then their friends at age 12 says, hey, do you want a drink? Oh, I've had a drink. And you have a drink, and all of a sudden, you, know, you find yourself you know, going down a, a slippery slope. So again, I'm not, I, I think what you're, your dad, by being a, a social drinker and, and drinking in moderation, he didn't damage you. He probably, that probably helped you because you saw, saw somebody drink responsibly. We have a guy who sits over here, who uh, Jeff would know, who actually owns a winery, and you know, he, his, he was, he's from another country, and his, his parents taught him very early to drink in moderation, but he started drinking at age nine responsibly. But he said, fear, he, he always says, fear the grape. So his parents said, fear, you know, fear the grape, you know, because it could take you someplace you don't want to go. Um, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> but fear, fear the grape, but I would, re- and that's fantastic, because he fears the grape, he's never drunk, you know, whatever. But at the same time, um, my worry is for the numerous kids that I've, I was, my background is youth ministry, the numerous kids that they could have that sip. You know, you, kids don't get drink now. They don't get the, uh, the thing from somebody standing at the, uh, out in the Circle K saying, hey, will you buy me a beer? Like that used to happen. Um, it now happens within the home. You know, parents' liquor cabinet and all that kind of good stuff. So I took time on that because I think that's a really critical, great issue. And I don't, you, you saw me kind of, nobody's going to walk out of here going, oh, Jim has this you know, exact idea on what to do. And I'm surely not putting your dad down, but that, I wouldn't choose to do that. Uh, on a phone, I don't know one that, I mean, there's definitely apps that you can get that could show your kid's activity, but I'm not sure that you can see it as it's going on a phone. Does anybody else know that? I think you can. Um, there's a software called Covenant Eyes, Yeah. and you can put yourself as the accountability person, and so any, anything that they visit yeah. on their phone or tablet or computer can come through. L- l- let me give you... Let me talk about those two, okay, because I was going to bring it up and I missed it. I would suggest that you get two softwares. I mean, now this is for your, this is more computer-ish. You, you can do it on the phone, but it, it's only what they do on, online. It's not going to show texting and other kind of things with Covenant Eyes. It's, to, Covenant, to me, Covenant Eyes is the best. 
and it's going to cost you a little bit. It's well worth it. So Covenant Eyes, and you can go to covenanteyes.com, and, and it is a accountability software so that if, um, if and, and triplexchurch.com is the same thing, xxxchurch.com, great, great deal. So what, is, what that means is if I'm on my phone and I'm, and I'm going online and I looked at pornography, it would go to Kathy, you know, my accountability partner, whoever. Okay, so that you can get, and, and that's that kind of thing you want to look at. At the same time, if you're talking about if your kids have, um, if they're texting or sexting or whatever, there are things you can get. There are programs that you can get, but you can't read it on your phone. Typically, you have to go on their phone, unless somebody can tell me of something new. There's something that we downloaded that's called Modisip. Is it Leon? Hmm? Yeah, definitely they're on online. I don't I, again, I don't know that every aspect of a phone would be, but but definitely the online. And there's a lot of good ones. You guys can Google and 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 then again, the other thing about this is make sure that when your kids are younger, make sure that you guys have some kind of, you know, again, there's some kind of protection if you would. Net nanny, a lot of Christians use be safe online. And so what you're talking about here is just, you know, protecting your kids. I laugh because Mariner's Church, Irvine, I was doing a, a parenting seminar there, and they were going to put up the Homeward website for the people to look at, the organization I work with, Homeward.com, and they couldn't put it up because it didn't make it through their filter because it had an article on sex, and it was on the, the front page of the thing, so we were like all proud. We go, wow, we didn't make it through the filter at Mariner's or whatever, but, um, you know, so, so no filter is, is perfect, but just the, the element of filters, these are things that you want to look at too. Yeah. six, he's going to be curious. I mean, one thing about a six to nine-year-old is that one of the major things that they do is they ask questions and there's a curiosity. So how cool that if he has questions about the body that you're sitting there being able to answer those questions the way you would answer to a six-year-old. You're not going to, if you answer him like a 16-year-old, then, you know, you're going too far. But I think that's a, I think that's a great way. I mean, the best sex education, if you would, um, or drug education or anything else that we're talking about comes on the spontaneous conversation. So because he likes science, you guys got it easier. I mean, there's kids who don't want to look at that stuff, and especially with mom. <laughs> so if he's looking at that with you, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow, start the conversation. But again, have it as a six-year-old conversation, not as a 12-year-old conversation. Let's go with one more. Anybody? Yeah. I think I don't it's. Want to them no, that I think it's with the family. I think. Wh- oh yeah. Well, I'm. You know, I have a. Yeah. Somebody. Somebody said to me. Yeah. Somebody said to me that there was a seven-year-old who said, "I'm the only seven-year-old in the school that doesn't have a phone." I'm sure that's not the case, but you know what I mean. No, I, I think. It, I think it's family, and I would say how you would start with those guys is that you don't give them a. You have a family phone, so. Maybe there's even an extra phone, and you say, hey, you're, gonna, you're going over to your buddies or you're in the sport or whatever, so you're going to take that phone. So 
but, but it's a right and a privilege, and then they earn that, and then if, if you see them being responsible, you know, then you make the move. I mean, nothing like having to buy, with twins, you gotta buy like two phones, you know, because you're gonna have so much fun. But, but at, you know, 11, it's a privilege. Um, some people don't, some people have it markers. I know somebody that was telling me here um, last week that, you know, their daughter could date when she was 16 if she was responsible enough, and she got a phone at 16. So, you know, there's people who, who make all kinds of decisions. There's other people in this room who would have kids, you know, who would have, our, their kids would already have access to a phone. But having access to a phone doesn't mean they have access to everything that I have access to on this guy, okay? As an adult, I'm going to be more responsible. But with an 11-year-old, that's not, they, they, we can't give them something like this and just go, here you go.